Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon, and you excuse me if I sound raspy. Um, uh, talking to you from Florida, where it seems to me a month earlier than it's supposed to, the heat and humidity are here, and the long-term forecast says that's it. So if I get a ground of golf in in the next month, hopefully, it'll already be the summer heat. Terrible, terrible problem. Anyway, I want to, uh, I don't normally do two shows in a row, but since I am home and I think about what's going on a lot, uh, if something comes to me that I feel is worth talking about, I structure a show. And I did this one this morning. I set it up this morning based on an article I read in the Sunday, this past Sunday's New York Times um, uh, digest section, the the op-ed section. Uh, And I want to talk about it. It's called Don't Ignore Clinical Mental Illness. And it's written by one Andrew Solomon, whose name was familiar to me, so I have researched him a little. He is a professor of medical clinical psychology at Columbia University Medical Center, which is about as prestigious a place as you could be a professor. He is the uh, author of Far From the Trees, which has been made into a documentary film, and the book The Noonday Demon and Far and Away. The Noonday Demon has won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, has a, was a Pulitzer Prize, excuse me, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and won the National Book Award. So uh, I recognize uh, Andrew Solomon and respect him, admire him. Um, and even am, am jealous of him, uh, of his success. Um, Gore Vidal once wrote of somebody uh, who wrote a book that he really admired, and he said, every time I read a page, it kills me a little. Uh, and I mean that in, in the same way. Um, what I read in this, I'm going to read pieces of this, 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 uh, uh, this uh, article, is that I think if I met him, I would like him. I would hope he would like me. I think he is highly educated. I think he is humane. I think he is kind. Uh, there is nothing uh, in this that is judgmental uh, or, or said in any kind of a hierarchical, authoritarian way. Uh, he is well-trained. Uh, he, has the, the, he is a scientist. There is nothing that I could say about him as a person that would be anything less than positive, admiring, and and the best. However, the article upset me no end. Because from those of you who follow my show, uh, I believe that mental illness doesn't exist. Uh, Depression and anxiety have nothing to do with illness, even though... Uh, intense depression and intense anxiety, if not handled right, if not understood for what they really are as adaptive emotions, can really uh, uh, damage the way a person lives and come about because of the false conceptions that people might have about varying things. So as I read this, and I'm going to make the statement in advance, 
this really fine human being, intelligent and an important person who deserves his success, is part of the hierarchy of priests of the religion of psychiatry. And psychiatry operates as a religion. And like all religions, it's comprised of facts, which may or may not be true. It's, uh, of, it's guided by a moral vision. Uh, and in this case, people shouldn't have to suffer needlessly. Um, but it has to be accepted on faith. And if anybody has ever argued with their psychiatrist or with somebody else in the mental health field, and I've had this experience personally, um, you know that it's the quickest way to be diagnosed as mentally ill. But there's something really wrong with you if you question the assumptions of the religion. Okay? Because it is a religion. And it is defended like a religion. And the statements are made as part of a religion. As if they were a religion. So I want to get into the article. Uh, and I want to start by reading some of the, uh, his words, finely written words. For nearly 30 years, most of my adult life, I have struggled with depression and anxiety. While I have never felt alone in such commonplace afflictions, the family secret everyone shares, I now find I have more fellow sufferers than I could ever imagined. Within weeks, the familiar symptoms of mental illness have become universal reality. If I read this correctly, and maybe I'm not, anybody who now has been locked in their house and is filled with anxiety and dread, are, are mentally ill. If not mentally ill, can become mentally ill. They are the reality, and therefore the illnesses that these things are claimed to be are illnesses. Now, he makes a differentiation here. If I'm just uh, really anxious for a day, and I come out of it, I, and I find another perspective with which to see the next day, which really has been happening to me personally uh, since this horror has started, and I'm not mentally ill. The people he's most worried about are people who have already been diagnosed and accepted that they're mentally ill with depression and anxiety, as he himself defines himself to either have or be depressed and anxious having the major depressive disorder, I suppose, he doesn't use the diagnostic term here, or an anxiety disorder, or both. He writes, but what response can cause us to lose sight of the dangerous secondary crisis unfolding alongside the more obvious one, an escalation in both short-term and long-term clinical mental illness that may endure for decades after the pandemic recedes? When everyone else is experiencing depression and anxiety, real clinical mental illness can get erased. And that is overwhelmed, so you don't see it for what it is. No, I disagree with that. Right? There, are, there aren't illnesses. There are states of mind brought about. And I will discuss both the anxiety and the depression a little bit later. But they're brought about by the way in which 
the individual, each of us as individuals and collectively interpret what is happening to us at various points in our life. But the moment somebody is diagnosed as having depression or being a depressed person or having an anxiety disorder or worse, being an anxious person, an anxious uh, uh, being the disorder, something terrible begins to happen. So let me continue reading. The unequal treatment of the two kinds of health, physical over mental, is consonant with society's disregard for psychological stability. Yes, we do very poorly in our society about helping people live a life that we think and they think, if we can agree on it, they should be living. And part of that life would be to be stable in the sense that if that life is changed, it is we as individuals who initiate the change and find a reasonable, rational way to develop the skills and the understanding to live within that change. But none of this relates to anything medical. And that is the point I make in all my shows. And by the way, I hope people will, if they like this show, will listen to the one yesterday, which was a conversation I had with two colleagues, friend and a colleague, about Thomas Zass and his incredibly important book, The Myth of Mental Illness. These are states of mind. They're states of being. They're ways of being in the world. They're not illnesses. And if it could be shown that there is a medical reason for this anxiety and this feeling of depression. If it could be shown, then they wouldn't be mental illnesses. They would be biological illnesses. They would be meta true medical problems. And I think that Andrew Solomon has a PhD uh, in clinical psychology, which means he wasn't trained in medicine. He, like myself, should have nothing to do with treating the underlying cause of that so-called illness. Because then it's not a mental illness, because as I argue constantly, and, and, I, and I hope to get people to read Zas's book and my book, Psycho Psychotherapy and the Stories We Live By, that these are, uh, have nothing to do directly with medicine. Okay? and shouldn't be treated medically. Let me read on. There are roughly four responses to the pandemic and the contingent social isolation. Some people take it all in stride and rely on a foundation of unshakable psychic stability. Others constitute the worried well who need only a bit of psychological first aid. That, that word first aid, see, it, when people who use the medical model, who use diagnostic terms as if these moral labels, these judgments were actually medical illnesses, keep throwing in without even being aware of it. And in the best of intentions, medical concepts such as first aid, a third group with no previous experience in these orders are being catapulted into them. Last, many of those who are already suffering from major depressive disorder have had their condition exacerbated, developing what clinicians would call double depression, 
which is a persistent depressive disorder, is overlaid with an episode of unbearable pain. Now, nowhere in this article really does we talk about what it feels like to be a human being, whether previously diagnosed or not. In an intolerable situation, which may carry with it social isolation, as I said yesterday, I'm very lucky. I'm living with my wife, and we've both remained healthy thus far through this, this terrible pandemic. Uh, I'm able now to call uh, the local supermarket and within a few hours get a delivery of whatever foodstuffs I need. I have access to doing this show. Um, so I have all kinds of, of things in my life that as much as this is driving me nuts, and I use that word in the colloquial, not medical sense, as much as this is affecting me, I can't imagine what it is like if I'm in an apartment I mean, I could walk out of my house like I did this morning, and I did a three-mile walk around my development, perfectly safe, perfectly health, healthy, uh, and I came back feeling invigorated and better. Did some yoga, did some meditation. Uh, what if you don't have that? Right. To say that the reaction to that represents a disease, a disorder right, is to medicalize a human condition without putting yourself in the position of being in that situation with all of the individual differences, genetic, biological, historical, social, economic, and political that go into the reaction to that situation. Social isolation generates at least as much escalation of mental illness as does the fear of the virus itself. Julian Holt Lundstedt, a psychologist, found that social isolation is twice as harmful to a person's physical health as obesity. And again, I think about, were I going through this alone in an apartment without my wife or one of my neighbors, a woman who's now recovering from the virus, lost her husband to the virus. Okay. What will life be for her now? Is she disordered if the best she could do is judged by a doctor, a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist as being in a diseased, medically ill state? What's the right thing for her to do? What would be the healthy alternative, given her history, her loss, as an individual? All of that gets bled out by that kind of a statement. Loneliness is toxic. And it has medical consequences. But loneliness However, it's generated as a psychological state of mind. It's an emotion, an intense, powerful emotion that motivates an individual to do something to end the loneliness. I think we all agree that perhaps the best thing to do to be not lonely is to be with other people. What if they're not available? What if the people, your family, like mine, 
and like the person who just lost her husband in my development here, in my gated community here in Florida, are up north, and they're sequestered. They can't come down, and she can't go up. Right? Who's to satisfy the loneliness? None of us are going to visit this woman's house. She's now in isolation for at least two weeks. And given the fact that we have no real medical testing to know who has it, who had it, who is a carrier, a silent carrier, all of this, which has been so badly butchered by our present administration and, and, the, and government, what are we to say about the reactions of this individual? Other than make a judgment about it and say there is an illness. The virus is spread, cannot, oh, we have two triggers for mental illness. Well, let me read on. The virus is spread, cannot be mitigated for now, but the anticipatory fear it causes can be eased through two time-honored techniques, augmented medication and increased contact with therapists. All right, let's talk about that. First of all, since these are not real illnesses, they're not real medications. They're drugs. I have GERD, and I can manage my GERD in all kinds of ways. But one of the things that I love in the evening is a glass of wine. And I know if I drink my glass or two of wine too many evenings in a row, I am going to pay a real price for it. Since this thing has started, my glass of wine is something I look forward to. Well, I guess I must have a problem, uh, an alcoholic disorder, because any kind of thing that might cause problems to somebody can now be diagnostically turned into a disorder. So when this started, I stocked up on some of my favorite wines. And I, by the way, I used to drink red wine, which really, really bothers me. Oh. So I now drink white wine. Every once in a while, uh, I discover white wine. I discovered, uh, for example, Sauvignon Blancs. Many of them from New Zealand are really wonderful. Not as good as red, not as good as a, as a, Sauvign- uh, as a Cabernet Sauvignon, but good. Lately, I just discovered uh, uh, Kendall Jackson uh, Chardonnay. Vintners, the Vintners variety. Wow, what a wonderful wine. Problem is, I drank two nights in a row. Last night, I was sick as a dog. Uh, Two nights ago, I was sick with my GERD and and terrible symptoms, including a cough that drove me crazy. Today, I woke up. I didn't drink last night. Today, I woke up feeling better, and I'm saying, gee, should I? No, no, I can't drink again tonight, at least until tomorrow night or the night after that. Terrible. The deprivations we have to go through. But those are physical problems created by a physical act. But that wine is no more a real medication than the stuff that Big Pharma sells people. It disables my brain's capacity to feel the enormity of the event going on around me. And I'm a really, I don't get drunk, but I'm a good drinker that way. It makes me happy. The world takes on a brighter glow, and 
all of a sudden, I really believe this will be over sooner rather than later. I don't know the reality of the facts, but it doesn't matter. A couple of glasses of wine and I'm good for the evening. It's a better day. For some people, usually a minority, those pills are better, but they do the same thing as my wine. They disable the brain's function. For any of you listening to this, if you get a medication, and I take medications, and every three or four months I see my doctor, and he shows me <clears throat> the results of the blood tests in which my blood level of my, my kidney functions, my liver functions, and other functions have to fall between a lower limit and an upper limit. Otherwise, medical science has demonstrated that I could be seriously ill if I fall below certain levels or upper levels of certain hormones and other bodily chemicals. Ask your doctor. I don't know if Dr. Solomon does this. What is the lower limit of the, of the biochemical problem supposedly being treated? <clears throat> what is the upper limit of the same biological problem? What is the chemical? You hear the word serotonin. <clears throat> uh, uh, antidepressants create what's called a serotonin uptake, increases the level of serotonin. What's the upper level? What's the lower level? Above which is dangerous, below which you can predictably become depressed. The fact is <clears throat> that the information isn't there because nobody really knows what the psychological reality of depression is in physical terms. And once again, if it could be demonstrated that it is a physical problem, then it's not a mental illness. It is. It is, it is a biological medical illness. And then to increase your medication makes sense. If it could be shown you don't go above a dangerous upper level of the chemical that's trying to be stimulated in your brain. But you don't have to worry about that. It doesn't exist in our knowledge. Okay? It's therefore a drug. And when Dr. Solomon says he increases his patient's use of the medication and in himself, it is no different, I truly believe, than my saying, as I did three nights ago, which is one of the reasons I was so sick the day after. This wine was so good. I'm feeling so good. Let me have another couple of sips, another half a glass. Okay? Take another pill. I'll take another drink, and we're doing exactly what I believe is the same thing. Let me go on. Fear of contagion has pushed people into behavior that exacerbates depression and anxiety and so can lead to suicide, raising the mortality of COVID-19 among people who don't even have it. Quote, lonely people can succumb to, quote, touch deprivation and need to be embraced. Dr. Tiffany Field, director of the Touch Research Institute at the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine, has argued that touch deprivation exacerbates depression and weakens the immune system. Positive touch stimulates the vagal nerve 
and reduces cortisol, a stress hormone that can impair immune response. Now, I don't question the reality of those biological facts. But touch deprivation as a medical issue? Can anybody touch the person in a touch deprivation response? Can we bring strangers in to touch and hug? Or is it best when the person is touched and hugged by someone they love that reduces the terrible loneliness they feel as a human being now in close physical contact with another human being? It so annoys me and so upsets me when I read someone as bright and as humane and humanistic as Andrew Solomon, writing as if love doesn't exist. It's the touch. By whom, a stranger? A touch machine? It reduces the psychological that we live within, that we live by, into something physical. And the physical does underpin the psychological. Without the physical, there would be no psychological. But is the realm of the psychological, the realm of love, the realm of loneliness, being with and without people we care about, who care about us, that makes the difference? People die of loneliness. The physical problems it creates are physical problems. But this denies the psychological. Let me read on. Because I don't think I, yeah, I have some more things to do that I want to finish up. I was hoping some of my colleagues would, would uh, show up to make the, and enter into this discussion. But that's okay. People will see this later. My show gets archived uh, and I'd love comments sent to me based on the show, people who want to agree or disagree or debate. Uh, and if it's not personal and it becomes uh, uh, an kind of uh, intelligent thing I think uh, I, I should deal with as an intelligent, humane individual, I will invite such person on my show and we can talk about it and let the world hear our differing opinions, and how uh, we resolve or don't resolve them. The other day, he doc, Dr. Solomon writes, our fifth grade son said shakily, how long until I get to see my friends again? What are we going to do if they cancel camp? And then asked more tremulously, and what if you and Papa both die? What will happen to me? Was he showing some of my depressive tendencies, or was he just frightened and sad? He snapped out of it pretty quickly and hasn't returned to the topic, although I've made it clear that he can. It's an incredible statement. If the child had gone on, his son had gone on for two, three days or longer with a fear that he and his, his other father can die, and what will happen to him? That would make him mentally ill? I personally respond to this because my father died when I was 11 years old. I had a younger brother. I have a younger brother. In fact, I haven't called him in a few days to make sure he is okay. 
Uh, he lives way up in Boston where they have more cases of this than I have in my area. Uh, and a mother who had already a difficult life and who really was thrown for a loop at my father's death. But I was told I had to be the man of the house. I took responsibility in many ways for my brother. I had all kinds of responsibilities I assumed on myself to make my mother happy which, which, and reduce her suffering and anxiety, uh, uh, which I could never quite do uh, at 11. But I was thrown into a new reality, not into a mental illness. I may have been crazy as a bed book, but that's a moral judgment. It's not a medical judgment. But I was in a new reality. This little boy, this, how old? Fifth grade, so he's 10, maybe 9, maybe 11, 10, is now living in a new reality. Turns on the television, people are dying all around. There are people dying in New York and some cities who never went to the hospital. They probably died in their home alone. What a terrible thing. Their suffering is over but not the suffering of those who will try to find them eventually or the people who have to remove decaying bodies from these apartments. I mean, we're into something that on a psychological level is brand new. So I understood at that moment my father died. Anybody could die. <clears throat> the fairy tales of, of, of uh, 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 you know, uh, the prince and the princess who lived happily ever after were wonderful fairy tales, comforting fairy tales, but fairy tales. I, I understood that. This little boy, like myself, is not becoming mentally ill, disturbed, upset, unhappy, transformed. This is going to be a transformative experience for everyone who lives through it of every age. That transformative experience will be handled in some ways by those who judge to do it well and others who do it what we judge to be poorly. But none of that is an illness. This little boy is living with a wonderful father, a loving father who is nonetheless indoctrinating him into the religion of psychiatry, just as my parents indoctrinated me into the religion of Judaism. And I've never been a good Jew, and I hope this little boy is never a good member of the psychiatric religion, that he understands the difference between loneliness and the fear of what possibly could happen and how to deal with it as something, as a basic human condition, as a mental illness to be treated with an uptick of drugs. One more. Partly in his son's name, he says, I adjusted up my meds and I'm in contact with my therapist and I make sure to hug him and hug my husband, knowing all three of us save one another. Indeed. Right. He, you hug the people you love. They hug you back. And that is as close in this situation as anybody could save anyone. Certainly the moron in the White House 
isn't saving anyone, especially not even himself. Because I don't think he hugs anyone, and I don't think he wants anyone to hug him. I can't see it. Tragic, sad, dangerous. He writes, finally, I take a walk in the woods with my son and dog. Sometimes my son and I jump on the trampoline, which is immensely physically cozy. My husband, my son, and I pile in together for a movie nightly. My husband is obsessively, throw a little bit of magical uh, psychiatry, reading books about epidemics from the Black Plague to the 1918 pandemic, and teaching himself Portuguese online. We all find ways to comfort in our own curious way. Yes. Yes, we do. And hopefully we achieve it in our own way, hopefully with others. Hopefully, if no one else, a dog. <clears throat> I should say a word about that. In my development, there are a lot of widows. And they're all out walking the dog. And the dogs are really wonderful dogs. Uh, there's a couple across the street that has a dog that my wife and I have absolutely fallen in love with uh, uh, called Oscar. Oscar's uh, a crazy animal, but what a wonderful, loving, loving little beast he is. Uh, and we're talking about getting a dog. I mean, I don't know if I, that makes sense, but maybe we will. Um, certainly, if I had to be alone in the house, like many of the widows and a few of the widowers in my development, because this is a senior community, the dog makes a difference. I don't know if dogs hug you, but they love you. Or they act towards a person in a way that can be interpreted as love. And love is so important. It's not medical love. It's as basic a human need for our survival and our thriving as any other human need. So, I've said what I wanted to say. I wish Andrew Solomon, his husband, his child, health and safety. I would love sometime to do a debate with Andrew Solomon on his use of language. I don't question his deep desire to help, but I think he's doing more harm than help by telling people that they're sick if they're lonely, sick if they're frightened and can't work out or deal with the fright in the way that he and maybe society feels is the proper way to do it. Yes, there's a problem if you sink into loneliness and you decide to kill yourself. But that problem is the solution for the person who commits suicide. It's not a sickness. As I've said many times on this show, I worked for many years, the last years, eight years, nine years of my career in nursing homes. And I swear, I hope I have the courage to do something to prevent myself or the luck never to have to go into a nursing home. But if not, to do something one way or another to prevent going into a nursing home. To lie in a bed waiting for someone to change my diapers is not what I call a life. And most of the people who wanted to die that I work with and were helped by the fact that I did provide them a comfort and a relationship that was meaningful and held hands in a way that was 
comfort to a need for touch because there was a need for physical connection. But they wanted to die because, as they put it, and I write in my book, this was not a life. It's being biologically alive, but very little of what most of us call a meaningful life. There's no walks in the park, and there's no taking the pooch out, and there's no hugging and comforting a child. There is nothing. There's no going to work or writing a book or doing a show like I'm doing now. None of that. It's all gone. So I think that's enough for today. Um, have a good day. Stay safe. Stay healthy if you can. Do the best you can under the circumstances of your situation and your life. I hope you find comfort. I hope you find joy. Um, but please, don't accept the idea that under the terrible stress of this transformative moment that if you're unhappy and it goes on and you're having difficulty getting yourself together and finding a way to self-comfort or comfort others or be comforted by others, that it's an illness and it requires a lifetime of drugs and the acceptance of a belief that you got something wrong with your brain that could never be diagnosed and probably never will be diagnosed. Uh, don't do that. Because that will take your difficulty and make it that much worse. Ciao. Good afternoon. Very well. Goodbye. Ending the episode. Ending the episode. <laughs>